There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Please do that. <clears throat> and go down to verse 55. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 55. As we make our way through the book of 1 Samuel. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Lord, we love your word this morning. We've had such a great time here just in fellowship, in in worshiping you, Lord. And, Father, we turn to your word. And we do pray, Lord, that the... uh, the meditation of my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be acceptable to you today, Lord. Let our hearts be fertile ground in which your word can grow. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Things were tough on Ted from the day that he was born. He was born in Chicago in 1942 to Polish parents. His father was a sausage maker, and his mother took care of the boys. He was hospitalized when he was only six months old after he suffered an allergic reaction because of a drug that was given to him. During that time, by doctor's orders, he was neither held nor embraced by his parents. When he came home from the hospital, he was described by his mom and dad as being listless and withdrawn. Ted's early childhood was one of continued withdrawal. His mother and father were bent on intellectual stimulation and would take him to museums and art galleries as a baby to try and inspire him. Ted sprinted through high school at Evergreen Park High. He avoided all human contact, but he did play in the band for two years. He also participated in the coin club, biology club, German club, and the math club. He never struck his classmates as strange or anything. He was just introverted. But there could be no question of this one thing. Discipline problems aside, Ted was absolutely intellectually brilliant, and he headed off to Harvard at the young age of 16. At Harvard, Ted shared a preppy suite with five other guys. Michael Rohr, a roommate of Ted, said, I can't remember having a conversation with him. Patrick McIntosh says, 
Ted had a special talent for avoiding relationships by moving quickly past groups of people and slamming the door behind him. Ted finished his degree at Harvard at age 20 and headed off to the University of Michigan where he received his master's and his Ph.D. University of Michigan professor Peter Dorea says, Ted did not go out of his way to make social contact, but he didn't strike me as being pathological. University of Michigan professor also said that people in math are sometimes a bit strange. It goes with the creativity. He then went to the University of California, Berkeley to teach. Finally, Ted dropped out of civilization and moved to Montana in 1971. In 1990, Ted took an even deeper plunge into isolation. His father committed suicide, and Ted didn't even attend the funeral. He said he had developed a heart arrhythmia, which was made worse because of dealing with his family. Ted asked his family to draw a red line under the postage stamp to identify any urgent and important letters they may send. When they used the red line to identify the letter in which they broke the news of their father's suicide, Ted wrote back complaining that the message didn't merit a red line. FBI agents arrested Ted on April 3, 1996, at his remote cabin outside Lincoln, Montana, where he was found in an unkempt state. Combing the cabin, the investigators found a wealth of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiences and inscriptions of his crimes and one live bomb ready for mailing. Ted continued to drop deeper and deeper into seclusion until finally the world became familiar with him, not by his name, but by the tag that was given to him. You would know him as Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Kaczynski is now serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at a maximum facility in Colorado. 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 <laughs> That's where they put the real bad people's Colorado. <clears throat> I can only go up from here. Uh, what is it that causes people to drop out of society and shun the responsibility and any possibility of friendship with those around them? And it's not just for eccentric hermits like Ted Kaczynski. The same scenario was lived out by a notable man named Howard Hughes. Now, Howard Hughes was a multimillionaire who lived the last years of his life in seclusion outside the United States. Could it have been the numerous portrayal by his friends, the fact that he was just a busy man, or his lack of willingness to develop strong relationships? I don't know. But I do know that he died all alone. What causes people to drop out? Well, I can think of several reasons why people would shun friendships. We get tired of being let down by those people we are supposed to be able to trust. We don't want to risk losing someone that we love. Or we're just too busy to give the time demanded in order to have real friends. And if we truly reveal ourselves to a friend, they might even reject us. We may feel it's simply too hard to maintain meaningful relationships. The list goes on and on. I know some of these excuses well because I have used some of them. But I've learned over the course of my life that none of these excuses will hold water. 
the more I try to avoid close, intimate relationships and simply maintain instead acquaintances, the more I am pressed by Almighty God to give up my fear, my laziness, my busyness, and lack of faith so that I might plunge into the pool of friendship. Can any of you relate to what I am saying? I'm talking about real, intimate friendships. I'm talking about being able to share from the depth of your soul. I'm talking about a person in whom you can trust and one you can confide in with no reservation. I'm talking about someone who has seen the real you and has chosen to continue to love you anyway. I'm not talking about someone with which you can catch a ball game, tech, shop, or just do lunch. I'm not talking about the imaginary friends that we all have on Facebook. I'm talking about true and lasting friendship. Today we're going to see perhaps the greatest example of this in all of the Bible. It is the story of Jonathan and David. In this account, we're going to be given many examples of both the importance of friends and how friendship should work. But before we get to that, we need to finish the last verses of chapter 17. Look at verse 55 with me, please. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. To really appreciate what happened next, we must be aware of the enormous impact that the defeat of Goliath would have had. Remember that the single greatest threat to Israel's existence were the Philistines, and they were a very real threat at that. For some 40 days, the Israeli troops had been quaking in terror at the abuse bellowed by the Philistines. And prior to that day, David had been a virtual nobody in Israel. But with the defeat of Goliath, he could no longer enjoy obscurity. What he had done in the sight of everyone was simply extraordinary. And it fully deserved the long account that it has been given in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So now at the end of chapter 17, he unsurprisingly comes to the attention of King Saul. As you know, we've been asking you to write down and put in the offering box any of the hard questions concerning the Bible or just life in general. And the beginning of our study provides us with a good example of what the skeptic would call a Bible contradiction. Now, here's the apparent discrepancy. Back in chapter 16, we learned that because of an evil spirit that tormented Saul, he requested someone to play music for him when he was suffering. His servants went and brought David back to the palace, who then would occasionally play for the king. So the question is, why in the world now would Saul be asking who David is? Isn't this just another contradiction proving the Bible is unreliable and can't be trusted. Well, first off, if we look at it closer, Saul isn't asking who David is. Saul already knew who David was. He is asking Abner the name of the boy's father. And if you remember, Saul had just promised to whoever defeated Goliath he would give them his daughter's hand in marriage. So it only makes sense that he wants to know who his future in-laws are about to be. 
Now, it is true that Jesse had been mentioned earlier in Saul's circle, but perhaps Abner wasn't present at the time. Now, I think this Bible difficulty is very easy to reconcile. Are you ready? You might want to write this down. I think Saul just forgot. Now, some have blamed Saul's disease and failing mental state on the view that perhaps the evil spirit from God had brought on some type of mental malady that affected his memory. And people suffering from certain types of mania or insanity also forget their closest of their friends. Now, that could be true, or simply, maybe Saul just forgot. As I'll be 50 years old in a couple of months, I can easily sympathize and identify with this. I can't tell you the number of times I think of something that I need to retrieve from another room. And so I walk resolutely towards that object. But somewhere in my journey, my brain is like those old etch-a-sketches. And as I walk, it gets all shook up, and now I can't read it anymore. That used to really bother me. Disgusted with my failing faculties, I would sit down until I figured it out. But now I realize that life is just too short for that. If I can't think of it in a few seconds, I just shrug my shoulders and go on with life and just pray the ramifications of forgetting it aren't too dire. But enough about my need for the nursing home. There is a maxim in philosophy called Occam's Razor. Defined, it simply means that the simplest of explanations are more likely to be correct than any other. It's the idea that with all things being equal between two theories, the simpler one is preferable. Why? Because Occam's razor shaves away any unnecessary assumptions. And in the study of Scripture, as in the study of any other discipline, Occam's razor should always be our first choice. And so if I were coming at this passage as an honest atheist or a skeptic, and if I'm coming without any type of preconceived bias, the most simple explanation is Saul simply forgot the name of David's father, Jesse. Now, these are the types of things we're going to be dealing with on Wednesday night, which I urge you to attend. But before we leave chapter 17, one quick comment on verse 57. It says, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine still in his hand. That's easy to read over, isn't it? Can you imagine David standing there holding that severed head of Goliath? I can just envision the head of Goliath swinging back and forth. His tongue stuck out of one corner of his mouth and his big bulging eyes and this, I can't believe this happened, look on his face. Now, is it me or is that just a tad bit gruesome? If you didn't know this was the Bible, you might think you're reading a King or a Stephen King novel. Maybe it's just me. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. In our concluding glimpse of this story, have you noticed that there was another spectator? His name was Jonathan, the son of Saul, who naturally watched the whole battle with great concern. Now, he had been among those who had not dared to go out and fight. But as he watched David go out and fight Goliath in the name of the Lord, his soul was knit to David's, and he loved him as his own soul. 
It uses an interesting word there in verse 1. It says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. The word for knit literally gives us the idea of a steel chain that has its links joined together. Now, the interesting thing is some biblical chronologists calculate there could have been an age difference of 25 to 28 years between Jonathan and David. Now, this makes the friendship all the more amazing. Now, this particular consideration tends to be overlooked when David and Jonathan's relationship is presented in a less worthy light. Perhaps I should say a word in passing, which is actually more than it deserves, about the viewpoint sometimes expressed that the David-Jonathan relationship may have had a sexual aspect to it. I think it's shameful that some have tarnished this beautiful story by trying to claim that the friendship between David and Jonathan provides a biblical basis for homosexuality. Now, the absurdity of that suggestion will be made clear in this chapter. To see sex between the lines of the David-Jonathan story depends upon our modern perception, as the text themselves gives no hint of sexual behavior. Actually, the language is very strong against that. Almost the same expression is used in the description of Jacob's relationship with his son Benjamin. This is Genesis 44:30. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, since his life is bound up in the boy's life, it will happen when he sees the boy is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of their servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Now, that phrase bound up is the same Hebrew word that is translated knit in our account this morning. Jacob's soul was then knit to his young son's soul. In other words, it's language suitable to a family type of relationship. We might say that in our case, David and Jonathan became not rivals, but instead they became like brothers. It's a very specific Hebrew word that is used to the love that they had one for another. It's a word of trust, and it's a word of covenant. And it's never used once for sexual love anywhere in the entire Old Testament. In fact, in verse 16, it tells us that all Israel and Judah love David. And that is the same exact word for the love of Jonathan and David. And yet no one thinks that all of Israel and Judah were having sex with David. As one writer put it, everyone in this chapter loves David apart from Saul, And we can see that in verses 16, 20, and 22. So Jonathan listened to his father and David converse, and after the interview, took David into his own heart with a kind of manly affection that comrades in arms understand. This is not the Oprah, milk-toast, limp-wristed variety of love that is so often shown in television. This is the kind of love that causes a man to throw, throw himself upon a grenade to save his buddies. This is the kind of love that is completely unselfish, and instead it is centered on others. This is the kind of love that we should all strive to have in our individual lives. Verse 3, please. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Now, usually when we think of covenant relationships, we think of God's covenant with us through the cross of Christ or the marriage covenant. But perhaps we should also consider making friendship a covenant relationship also. Friendship is not something that is going to happen by osmosis. 
We must put forth the effort to make friends if we want to have friends. Listen to the words of Proverbs 18.24. A man who has friends must show himself to be friendly, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. What's that saying? Simply, we have to make the effort to be friendly to others if we, too, want to have friends. Now, for the next part, once we make a friend, there's what I like to call the maintenance phase of keeping that friend. In short, that means that sometimes we will put the needs and desires of our friends over our own needs and desires. Friendships cannot survive on mutual admiration. They require commitments. Perhaps a great definition of friendship would be a friend is someone who is happy to spend their one day off on Saturday helping you paint your porch only for the pleasure of your company. Let me ask you, how would you define your friends this morning? I've always loved Irma Bombeck's definition of a friend when she says, a true friend is somebody who doesn't go on a diet when you're fat. Now, the Bible pictures David and Jonathan as making a conscious commitment to each other, a solemn compact, as in a covenant. And I think the term friendship needs to be rescued from its too casual use For friends have rights and responsibilities to one another. And we never know how much our commitment to someone else will mean in their life. Charles Francis Adam, the 19th century political figure and diplomat, kept a diary. One day he entered this. When fishing with my son today, the day was wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, though, also kept a diary. On that same day, Brooke Adams made this entry. When fishing with my father the most wonderful day of my entire life. Now, the father thought he was wasting his time by keeping his relationship covenant with his son, but his son saw it as a very valuable investment of his father's relationship with him. So a commitment is an agreement to invest in others, and it only grows in the soil of commitment that friendships can properly grow and develop. And in our story, no matter how extreme the difficulty or the circumstances or the challenges, the covenant friendship between David and Jonathan lasts till the end of their lives. There is in each of us, I think, the need to have friends and to be a friend to other people. And like most things that are valuable, these things just won't happen. They are the outcome of great commitment. But when we do that, our, li- our lives are enriched immeasurably. But let me warn us up front. Friendships can be very messy ordeals. Let me give you another proverb. This is Proverbs 14.4. It says, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes from the strength of the ox. Do you know what that verse is saying? If you have no oxen, you don't have to make the effort to clean up after the ox, and your manger will be kept clean. But if you want to use the ox for revenue and for work, there is a price for that. Namely, it's widely known that oxen aren't toilet trained. Now, I don't want to impinge upon your delicate sensibilities, but what this verse is saying in West Virginia vernacular is, if you want to get stuff done, you got to put up with some doo-doo. 
read it for yourself. So, too, with relationships. We can't protect ourselves by really never knowing people or allowing them to know us. And sure enough, the stables of our life will be kept pristine. But if we want to engage people and get some work done, we're going to have to put up with some mess. That's just how life is. But here's the thing. Life can be incredibly difficult. And because of that, we all need one another. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It is a long, hard road to the celestial city, and none of us can do it alone very well. I love the story about Jackie Robinson. In his first season with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Jackie Robinson, who was the first black man to play Major League Baseball, faced venom nearly everywhere he went. Things like fastballs thrown purposely at his head, being spiked on the bases, and brutal nicknames from the opposing dugouts and from the crowds. And during one game in Boston, the taunts and racial slurs seemed to reach a peak. In the midst of this, another Dodger, the captain of the team, a southern white boy named Pee Wee Reese, called a timeout. He walked from his position at shortstop towards Robinson at second base. And he just stood there with him for what seemed like a long time. Eventually, that silenced and to some extent shamed the crowd. That gesture spoke volumes. Now, did it make a difference to Jackie Robinson? Later, Robinson said, that move by Pee Wee Reese saved my career. You know, I want that kind of friend in my life. And I want to be that kind of friend to others. Those kind of friends are like espresso to your soul. We all need someone, and we all need to be that someone who will stand by a friend in time of need. Another thing I've learned over the years about friendship is that it's often inconvenient. Very often, if we are to be a true friend to someone, we'll have to put our desires and our plans to the side for the sake of that friendship. Hear the words of Jesus in John 15:13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Now, of course, in context, that is speaking of Christ and the cross. But the true sign of friendship is sacrifice. And Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice by laying down his life for his friends. But if you will allow me a little latitude this morning, I think within that verse lies another truth concerning friendship. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Not to stretch the text too far, but I also believe that the greatest love we can show one another is when we are willing to lay down our lives for the sake of our friends. Now, I'm not speaking of dying a physical death here, but there are other ways we can lay our lives down and die to our own selfish desires. For example... 
Why does someone in our church would need help moving to their new home on a Tuesday night? It is so tempting to think, I've already worked all day and I'm tired. Or I'm sure that others will be able to help. That's the easy way out, my friends. But instead what we should do, if it is possible, is get home, take a shower, stuff a hot dog down our throat, and lace up that back brace. For when we do that, we have in effect died to ourselves by laying down our life for our friends. That's just one example, and I'm sure you can think of countless others. In closing, while it's true that friendship is messy, inconvenient, and takes a level of commitment, only eternity will reveal the rewards of any commitment that we make. Imagine that a stranger approached you one day when you were vacationing at the seashore, and he asked you to move some sand. He gave you a teaspoon and instructed you to move the sand one teaspoon at a time from the beach. You were not to use a bucket or a wheelbarrow. You had to carry each teaspoon of sand across the beach, across the boardwalk, through a big parking lot, and to a dump truck parked in the far corner of that lot. You then had to climb up the side of the dump truck and toss the sand into the bed of the truck. And you know that all the while you're doing this, the waves are replenishing what you've carried away. Now, many times during the day, you wanted to toss the teaspoon into the ocean and give up. But suppose that at the end of the day, the person who hired you walks past all the tons of sand that is left on the beach. He climbs into the truck and carefully sweeps every grain of sand that you have carried into a small pile. He looks at the sand and smiles approvingly and says, what we're going to do is weigh all the sand that you carried, and I'll give you an equal weight in diamonds. Suddenly, your commitment is seen in an entirely different light, isn't it? You know, like that, I think we need to start looking at our commitments from the perspective of the great things that God can do when we make and keep our commitments to him and to one another. Don't just think about the difficulty of how relationships can sometimes seem like carrying teaspoons of sand, but just realize what God can transform our commitments into. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is my prayer for all of us. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And, Father, that is our prayer. You say that the world will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. And I pray, Lord, that that would just be in the forefront of our minds as we walk out of this building. Whenever people look at us, 
that is the first thing that they are drawn to because it is so absent in the world that the unbeliever lives in. That self-sacrificing, other-centered love. Make that true in each heart, Lord. Ask in Christ's name. Amen.